Hello and welcome to the Sports Loft Podcast. Today we're trialing a new format, which we're really excited about. But before we dive into that, um, if you like what you hear today, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and a review. Make sure you go to our website, sportsloft.co, and sign up to our newsletter to get the latest news in sports entertainment and technology. And also make sure to follow us on socials at SportsLoftHQ. So getting into it this week, we're pretty excited to be trialing a new format for this podcast, which is going to involve two SportsLoft member CEOs coming on board and giving us their views on the sports market and a sports market expert, which I'll all be very pleased to hear is not me for once. So uh, this week, we're very, very thankful to have uh, back on the podcast, uh, Nathan Peterson, the CEO and president of Tagboard. Nathan, welcome back to the Sports Loft Podcast. Thanks for having me, Ani. Always good to be here with you. Well, it's, it's great to have you. And just, just so that everybody knows, uh, you've just completed a Series A fundraising with uh, investors who include Wise Ventures, who are the ownership group of the Minnesota Vikings, who will be coming up very shortly uh, in this podcast, and also Sinclair Broadcasting. And you have uh, clients who include NFL Media, Major League Baseball, Fox Sports, and as Charlie Greenwood has put in his note, loads of NFL teams, which is, uh, which is great. <laughs> Hey, I'll I'll also give a a shameless plug for uh, Greg Norman Group, who uh, helped stand up Live Golf, and they are now on our cap table as well. So uh, as the the challenger in me wants to say that one loud and proud. (laughs) And I think we'll probably be getting to them as well. But uh, speaking of the aforementioned Minnesota Vikings, the man with the best backdrop in the uh, sports industry Zoom background, uh, the CEO and founder of Satisfy Labs, Donnie White, is here with us today. Donnie, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Yanni. Skull Vikings. <laughs> so, uh, Donnie, you've uh, led Satisfy through multiple financing rounds with Google and Major League Baseball on the board and over 200 venues in the U.S. using um, Satisfy Labs and artificial uh, artificial intelligence in conversational technology. Tell us a little bit about where you guys are at right now. We uh, just got our 400th client. And so when we focused on destinations and experiences, it's, it's really expanded just beyond the, the 200s really in the sports world. But mm-hmm. to see the sports world leading technologies like in ski resorts and places that you go today or they're, they're like, oh, I saw this at a football game. How do I get this in my business? It's just a great testament to how I think the sports technology group can lead just multiple industries, not just our own. So excited to be here. Awesome. And uh, we mentioned the Minnesota Vikings. Donnie is a hardcore Minnesota Vikings fan, currently uh, loving life with their excellent is it eight and one start to the, uh, eight to the and NFL one. season. Eight and one, our CMO is a Packers fan. So every uh, all hands after a Sunday, the company knows that my mood is dictated by their record. They've had a great fall winter. So they'll be excited. It's after this afternoon. I'm, I'm excited to rub it in. Even though the Packers won, it doesn't matter. They're still way behind. Awesome. And very happy to be welcoming for the first time to the Sports Loft podcast, Andy Southerden. Andy, welcome to the Sports Loft podcast. What a privilege to be here, albeit with a couple of minutes notice, Yanni. So if I'm out of breath, it's because I was I was running to the occasion. But um, it's it's a it's a great honor to be in esteemed company. Thank you for inviting me on. 
Well, thank you. Thank you for making the time for those for those at home who uh, haven't heard Andy's name. First of all, shame on you. Uh, secondly, uh, Andy's one of the foremost uh, sponsorship and communications expert in the market. He's uh, counseled major brands such as uh, HSBC, Procter and Gamble's group of brands, Adidas. Uh, he did the deal between David Beckham and Gillette. Uh, has led the strategy planning and activation for six six major sponsors uh, in London 2012 uh, and also subsequent Olympics and today advises companies across the whole range from startups to FTSE 100s on their partnership strategies. So Andy, a lot of industry insight to bring to this one. We're going to address uh, four burning topics in the world of uh, sports, uh, sports and technology, and uh, we might as well dive straight in. So a lot of things have hit the news over the past couple of weeks. But one of the things that we really thought would be very interesting to unpick is uh, what's going on at Twitter. Um, now, we're not necessarily going to dwell on um, whether Mr. Musk is ruining things or has some sort of brilliant strategic play uh, in the back of his mind that he's going to take forward. But what we really want to dive into is the impact on the uh, sports technology landscape. Um, and what I specifically mean by that is that we've had, everybody's read about the 50% of the workforce being laid off. Um, a lot of that is, uh, is in the product team. Obviously, Twitter's been working very hard on its product in order to be able to monetize uh, in the best possible way. Nathan and Donnie, you guys both run companies that are very product-driven, very focused on, on development. So starting with Nathan, I'd love to get your view on what that means for the industry, what it means for the potential flood of uh, engineers uh, and product guys coming onto the market uh, and where you stand on uh, kind of being able to find talent. Would you look at somebody who's been at Twitter or as a startup, do you need a different kind of profile? I'll throw that open to you and we can go from there. That's a great and loaded question. I, I'd uh, start by saying between you know, between the, the Twitter and Facebook layoffs, I mean, you've got thousands and thousands of really uh, talented people that are, are recently out of work. Um, you know, and I, I've had the privilege of working with both companies uh, basically my entire career um, because before I was ever in startups, I was kind of a, an entrepreneur inside of the social media space uh, in very, very early days before Facebook and Twitter even monetized. So I've seen the evolution of these companies go from, you know, uh, being, um, you know, posting a couple of selfies to, um, you know, full, full fledged advertising platforms that can hyper target you um, <laughs> and give you all those, uh, those, those, um, you know, fun gadgets and gizmos that show up on my doorstep every five days because I'm addicted to Instagram. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I do think that uh, the the market's going to obviously it's, it has an influx of talent at the moment. Um, you know, that's going to be a good thing for those that are seeking talent. Um, I think you're seeing in, in the tech space right now, everybody's pretty cautious about hiring. Um, just given the economic circumstances, you're not going to see uh, you're, you're likely not going to see a company like Donnie's or mine go out and like, you know, double the size of our team in the next couple of months. Right. Like we're um, we pay attention to the signals just like anybody else would. Uh, but we have uh, uh, let's let's just say way less cash to 
to play with on the, you know, on the front of trying to, uh, you know, trying to keep things going and, and, uh, the wind in your sails. So, um, you know, would I consider hiring somebody from Twitter and Facebook? Absolutely. I mean, it, it just, you know, I think for me, the, the makeup has way more to do with, um, you know, how you're, how you're generally built and, and around your skill sets and what you're, um, what you're comfortable with in the workforce. I always tell people like startups are definitely not for everybody. Um, you know, if you look at somebody's resume and they've only been in corporate environments, uh, it doesn't discount them from getting a chance at, at, at trying a, a startup. Uh, but you're, you're going to have a different type of series of questions trying to understand if you're comfortable with ambiguity, um, if, you're, if you need a, a box to play in, or if you can play outside of the box and just pick up puzzle pieces and put a puzzle piece or put a puzzle together, right? Mm-hmm. And Donnie, you were, you were sort of um, laughing when Nathan said that, uh, he, that you guys weren't going to go out and necessarily double your workforce. Is that because you agree or because you've already identified all of the product engineers that you're going to be, hi- going to be hiring from Facebook and Twitter? No, um, it's, it's just ironic because I, I had a board meeting a week ago and one investor goes, oh, we should go all in and get everybody from Twitter and the other investor goes like are you on drugs like what are board and these are board members and it was so ironic because you know everything Nathan said is true I think culture is a something that's not thought about enough when building your product and engineering teams and to add someone who's probably was ingrained to the culture of, of any of those strong companies and even stood to the point for change of control and then this happened, like there's a lot that says about their hopefulness for maintaining their position at that company. And when you come into a startup, I was at, I was at Bloomberg 15 years before startup. I actually didn't get a bunch of startup jobs I wanted because the comment made to me was, well, we don't know if you're good or Bloomberg's good. And so the container that Nathan mentioned where if I'm an exceptional developer at Twitter, I might need a certain environment to be successful. I can tell you that I am not providing any environment close to what Twitter, Facebook are providing, but we provide other things, which is a lifestyle, a team orientation, you know, us against the world, etc. So I did get some comments about that. But uh, also just as a, a sidebar, when companies do reductions in forces, I've done those. And it's not usually the top tier that you're cutting. So you have to mm-hmm. look at was it division that got shut down? Because then that's really unfortunate. That could be a business that has top, top talent and such. Or did they take the bottom 10% and just use the economic downturn as an excuse? I was talking to our COO at Hagen about that. And we're like, well, is this a like, camouflaged riff with the economy as the excuse? Or, and, and where is the talent and where is the opportunity? This is a great dialogue i i am not planning on doing much with it candidly because we just hired a bunch of engineers that we recruited over the last few months so i think we'll probably be standing pat during this time and andy what do you think the impact will be of this for these platforms and for uh their meaning to the sports industry well my my first observation is to take a slightly different route into this debate which is to analyze the employer brand which is a subject that so many companies um, underinvest in, in terms of how their employability brand is projecting to the world and how must that look 
for for Twitter, the meta to some degree as well. But this is being played out in real time, and the relationship between good communications, good reputation, good reputation and growth. I mean that there is an inextricable link between all three of those things, and the reduction of Twitter is inevitably included some of the comms people. Um, from a business perspective, Twitter is a relatively unprofitable business. In 2021, Twitter reported to have generated something, what was it, in the, in the region of $220 million in net losses. So radical candor is required when hard-hitting truths, at least in my opinion, when hard-hitting truths need to be addressed in underperforming businesses. <laughs> so let's jump on to another topic that's very close to my heart, which is have venture capital funds gotten too big to be effective to give investors return? The question here prompted by a number of stories over the past week, and I'll quote one. This is from um, Every. We'll put the link in the uh, podcast description in case you want to go go read it. To hit a 3 to 5x return for a fund, a venture partnership is looking to partner with startups that can go public at north of $50 billion. In the entire universe of public technology companies, there are only 48 public tech companies that are valued over $50 billion. And... I've sort of found this in my own experience as well in going to, to, to try to raise money for businesses that obviously I would say this, but I think are perfectly viable and have very, very good potential returns. But we're raising five to 10 million, which is what a lot of venture capitals tell us is a very tricky sum because you're more than what real angels can put in and you're not kind of at the level where uh, a big VC or a, a big institutional investor is looking for real big bang for the buck. So um, it's, uh, it's becoming increasingly tricky to raise those kinds of, uh, those kinds of funds. Donnie, you've been, uh, you've been in this uh, for a while. You've raised from a variety of different actors, including uh, uh, venture capital uh, and, uh, and private finance. How do you see the, uh, the, the current market? And do you think that actually some of them are getting too big and taking too many swings and missing on something, some, some opportunities that are right in front of their face, but with potentially lower returns? I, I have such a story about this. When I first started the company, I flew out to Silicon Valley and had a bunch of intros with huge brand VC. If I mentioned their names, you'd all say, oh, yeah, one, two, three, four. And I'm not mentioning them because I don't want them mad at me for this story. However, I got in the room and I pitched our idea and I, I, I had a pretty, what I'd call conservative estimate because I, I look at more, there's a TAM and then there's a SAM. So there's you know, what's total and what's actually achievable. I said, listen, I'm a five to seven X, almost guaranteed, assuming no world pandemic, that we do it in five to five and a half years. Like, this is what we're going to do. And here's how we're going to do it. And here's what I already have set up. And I remember the first one told me, well, we want to see your path to a billion. And I said, yeah, um, I don't, I don't really know what to say about that, that not every company is built to a billion. Like I could fake it. I could make mm -hmm. you a ridiculous Tam and I can create all these people. I go, if you sell sneakers, is it because everyone has two feet and you say how many feet are in the world? What if I sold everybody one? I mean, it starts to get into this like illogical <laughs> path of creation and pipeline. So what's interesting is in the last two weeks, uh, and we're looking at potentially a B next year, because we're in that in-between phase, like we're highly attractive to acquirers. And then one of my uh, one of my in investors said, hey, if you ever want to get acquired, just threaten a B round. 
And so, go as big as you can. And so I'm like, well, I actually can and still be true. But I saw some investors, a bunch of Midwest uh, and Southeast investors, VCs, reached out to me and said, hey, so we're not Silicon Valley. This is their pitch. We're not Silicon Valley. We're a 5 to 7x legitimately betting on 5 return VC. And it's part of their story. So you're hearing a new differentiation of we're not looking for that thing. We've seen what's realistic and how many of those carry. So there is a shift just in my last maybe three weeks even. So my last 10 meetings, all big growth funds shifting their messaging, I think, because the realism is now coming into play, which is what you just kind of articulated. So first of all, give me their numbers, please. Once you're once you're done with <laughs> your round. I will. I will. I'm making <laughs> friends. I'm like, you, you and I can be real friends. I'm a finance East Coast New York guy, I'm, a, you know, how do I actually see it to the end? You know, we'll figure it out later and make money. At, we'll lose, you know, when you lose money, you make it up in volume is one of those old mm -hmm. jokes. Uh, <laughs> we have, we're talking about a company that did that. But yes, we don't make up losses in volume. Perfect. Um, Nate, you guys, you guys have also just been, uh, just been through a round recently. Did you, did you find uh, any of those similar conversations and were you able to uh, entice investors uh, with uh, with the level of uh, the level of returns that you can offer? Yeah, you know, I have similar story to Donnie. I mean, like Tagboard was kind of an anomaly in most VCs eyes because we're actually an 11 year old company that reinvented itself. Um, I I'm not the original founder. Uh, I joined the company almost six years ago now, and we really you know, we right-sized the business, flipped it around and, and you know, found a solid go-to-market strategy and then bootstrapped from 2016 all the way till this year. And so um, really the last couple of years was our growth story, but it's not your exponential growth story where it's like you're going from $500,000 to like a couple million and like look at these triple digit growth numbers. It's not like that, right? You're like, you're like, no, I'm, I've actually, we have, uh, we have, you know, multiples of millions in, in recurring revenue, uh, but our growth is closer to like 30%. And so there's a lot of uh, VCs that look at that and they're like, you know, nope, sorry. Um, so we we went the non Silicon Valley route as well. Um, you know, found a, an amazing firm uh, called Greyhawk Ventures out of Phoenix. That you know, we sat down and we just talked about the plan. We talked about how we had turned around the business. We talked about the ability for growth, and they said, you know what, we want to um, we want to uh, co lead this round, and we'll we'll step up and and help you find some other folks. And we they helped us find more um, more firms that. Look like them and so um, next frontier capital out of Bozeman Montana they were next uh, next up <laughs> and uh, they came in along with Greyhawk and then we also uh, met with West River group out of Seattle which is where I'm from and so the three of them uh, came in as co-leads on the round uh, and then obviously with the strategics that you mentioned that all the strategics were were game right and that that's the interesting part is like you know, I think as a as an indicator for for VCs like on who to back, if you can get these strategics, 
to say like, hey, I'd love to put money into this. Like there's a reason for it, right? They they understand the business really, really well, but a lot of them are not going to lead you around. Um, you know, they're writing whatever 500, you know, 250, 500K, million dollar checks, um, but they don't want to, they don't want to be the lead on the round, but they see the value in it. And when they come onto the cap table, um, the amount of doors that they can open is, is unbelievable, right? Because the space is hyper-connected. So, um, you know, we've definitely had that, uh, that experience where it's not like, a, you know, it's not like our investors don't want to see a, a nice return, but they definitely have more reasonable expectations and they've been true partners in the process of trying to identify, um, you know, the, the path to get there and not, you know, not pressuring us too much to say, you know, hey, we need to see you guys go 10x this in the next couple of years. Um, you know, they backed a they backed a horse that can you know make it across the United States. We may not be the uh, you know we, we we may not be the the zero to sixty and and get across one state in like a couple of hours, but um, we're gonna get there. And our management mm-hmm. team has proven to build a, a methodical business. And you know, I think um, uh, the 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 sports term I always like to use is like you know I think investors need to start looking more at the doubles and triples, not just the home runs, um, in the game of baseball. Right. <laughs> mm. um, it feels, it feels like they're, they're looking at the grand slams, not even the home runs. Right? Yeah. They're like what can, what can net me this kind of, this kind of return? Um, uh, and it's, uh, especially with the shift in the, in, in the tech market and the inevitable bubble burst of, of web three as new projects, you know, start to solidify and we see what comes out of that. It'll be interesting to see how the uh, kind of uh, next six to 12 months play out in terms of valuations, in terms of the types of uh, investments that people make. Donnie, what are you expecting for that, you know, threatening series B? Uh, <laughs> are, are you are, are, are you expecting um, uh, an adjustment of the market or do you think it'll still be, you know, probably extra Silicon Valley, uh, X outside of Silicon Valley, uh, investors who would be most interested? Yeah, we, no, we have a good five that, uh, just, and, and it's funny to, to Nathan's point, they're like, well, have you managed a business up to now? I said, cash flow conscious, you know, the way we've even structured our contracts, the way we think about spending, the way we manage expenses. So we have not gone for this massive growth, high churn, high cost business, and we'll figure it out. Very similar to Nathan, like we're, we're finance guys, my co-founder Randy Newman and I, we're like, hey, what if we could just do this? <laughs> like how many people hate that? I mean, because you have that's, to beat the public market. I mean, that's, for everybody's that's benefit. For everybody's oh, benefit, sorry, that's a non-hockey line. stick. That's a non-hockey <laughs> stick growth. That's a 30, 30 degree growth line steadily rising, which is which which apparently is not enough. <laughs> well, when you're in the millions, you know, to to Nathan's point, when you're in the millions, it gets harder to have this mm. hockey stick. And you know, did you invest in FTX? How are you feeling right now? I mean, that was mm. a nice hockey stick, and some celebrity sports personalities are probably not thrilled with that hockey stick, but. I do see now it's it's funny the VCs that I've met with go, oh you know it's so smart you're cash flow conscious now I go no no, forever, <laughs> it just happens to be that now there's no liquidity for new investment and we're not desperately looking for someone to bail us out. The B round will be a, a cash flow positive company that wants to actually grow from itself, not survive itself, and I think that's 
So we played it one way. We got a lot of no's along the way for playing it this way. A little recession or whatever you would call this period of time kicks in. Oh, we like you guys. Oh, okay. The lighting's better. You know, we're the same outfit, but the lighting's better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think like the, you know, the other thing that's really fascinating too is you, you see uh, it always comes down to people, right? And um, you see a lot of risks being taken on what almost seems to be like, you know, everybody's trying to find the next Adam Newman. Um, you know, they, they, they want, they want to, you know, regardless that of what, well. yeah, well, I mean, he, he, do they he, though? He, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but like they're, they're all looking for that, that particular mind. And I, I think, you know, uh, you're going to see more and more, um, investors look at kind of the well-rounded, like, you know, uh, how many times have you failed on top of how many times have you actually had any kind of success? Um, you know, what, what's the resume look like that shows that you've tripped over yourself enough, uh, to go through some of these things and be successful. Um, you know, it, like it, it really is. I mean, I think first time, first time tech founders are always going to face an uphill battle, um, just for, you know, uh, the same kind of mistakes that you know everybody makes and you 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 can read about in a book a million times but like you're, you're still you know until you experience it you're still gonna end up inevitably going through these things and mm-hmm. um, you know uh, success in startups uh, has to do with so much more than one individual person and uh, Andy made a point earlier about culture. I think we, we have spent so much time, um, you know, really diving into making sure that our culture is something that is sustainable and it's a, and it's a daily approach, right? It's, um, we're building something great, but at the same time, you're always conscious of what's going on. You're taking in data sets and you're looking at, you know, how is my team doing on a regular basis? And I've, I've been saying to all of our investors, um, you know, that, uh, that they need to start looking at those metrics, right? Like when, instead of just looking at, at you know, the P&L, like ask for a people report and ask what kinds of data sets they have on uh, on the people that work for them. Because if you find a really strong culture and really strong trends by the data, then you're going to find, you know, a company that is a, that's a little bit easier to back because when times get tough, um, you know, the, the, the people will go to war with, with the leadership team. It's not just like one versus the other, right? Andy, you, you also... Um advise startups as well as FTSE 100 companies on uh, uh, on partnership strategy. Yeah. And so you'll have seen a lot of startups trying to navigate this world. What, what are you seeing from the raising side and from the startup side? I've, I find this area fascinating. I mean, one, once I got my head around the language, I could start to absorb the technicalities of what this whole world of sports business finance is about. And I, I have... I have one experience and one observation to share. The experience is a consistent one, which is whenever I start to grapple with startups, the mandate when raising money of having a sharp narrative and a compelling elevator pitch is so important. You cannot underscore the value of being able to describe quickly and succinctly, which the industry often struggles with, your pitch. 
and the dispassionate audience on the other side of the table when they're thinking about whether to make that investment decision or not relies on really sharp comms. And I would say that as a comms guy, but with many sports tech startups, and I'm not in the company of those with, with the sports loft cohorts, but the numbers of people that continue to talk about features over benefits and the, and the constantineering down of that story. So it's a magnetizing pitch is really quite difficult. So that's my experience and the speed at which they work, the pitch to the investor is an art form in and of itself. My observation is, and I'm sorry to take a question around VC and flip it to private equity, but in the broad domain of raising money, um, I read this, I scribbled it down as I was thinking about this question. I read somewhere that private equity firms spent $51 billion on sports investments globally in 21. I mean, $51 billion on sports investments. So what, what's interesting to me as a, as a layperson looking into all of this is sports leagues and federations are looking to set up their own investment divisions. And the NBA, uh, they did this, didn't they, a couple of weeks ago. Um, the, NFL, the NFL have got their, you know, their corner, MLB, PGA. They all have dedicated investment platforms. And to me, what that means is, is three things. That somebody, somebody going that route, um, route, I should say, as a Brit, but you know what I mean. Um, they, they, they immediately get sector expertise, um, which is product market fit. So as a startup or as a fast growth um, startup, I get, I get great input around product market fit. Finance to invest, of course, which is growth capital. Um, company building expertise, which is organizational acumen. So I, th I felt that that private equity route where rights holders are actually building up um, an ability to invest in what they see is going to be something that not only helps them, but it helps the industry. For fast growing startups, that's valuable IP and distribution. And for rights holders, it's skin in the game. So I'm, I'm very taken with that as a move and I can only see that as a trend increasing and um, you know, the NBA have been a bellwether for many brilliant things in our industry. And I, that story a couple of weeks ago just struck me, just struck me over the head around the way startups could seek alternative routes to investment. And there doesn't seem to be any ceiling on the growth of franchise valuations, whether you're talking about NBA franchises, NFL franchises, or Premier League franchises. We'll see what Liverpool wind up going for or what they wind up being valued at at the, at the end. But it seems that that continued franchise valuation growth can then underpin a lot of other opportunities in terms of investment that can unlock more revenue streams and more opportunities, right? So it'll be fascinating to see where it goes. Um, we are very rapidly coming up to the top of the hour. Uh, we will jump to give us your top one sports event or story of the past week. And we'll start with Nathan. What was yours? Oh, well, uh, Charlie Greenwood would kill me if I didn't mention the fact that we sat uh, basically on the ice at the Seattle Kraken game. It was uh, his his first experience and mine at, at the, the game. Um, uh, he came to London, or sorry, he came from London over to Seattle to come see me. And so I, I took him to the Kraken game. And uh, thanks, shout out to Todd Humphrey from the Seattle Kraken who hooked up uh, an amazing experience. But 
I can't say that's the one. Um, I'm going to have to say that the University of Washington beating Oregon and snapping their, I think it was 23 (laughs) games they won at home in a row. And Oregon was ranked number six in the nation. Uh, UW was ranked number 25. And, And I mean, I can't express to you, especially because I know a lot of our listeners are uh, over uh, on the UK side of the pond. This is a rivalry. I mean, we hate each other. We hate <laughs> each other. And and I'm a Husky and we hate the Ducks. And I, I, pro- I always promise to drop an F-bomb on this. Our, our, uh, our, our motto is fuck the Ducks, okay? So like we... <laughs> And we're and, not it, we're not beeping that one out. <laughs> no, no. And they and they have the they have this thing that they always like to say called uh, they, they say Huck the Fuskies. And and so I think I tweeted out after the game, after we beat them on their home turf, uh, I said, uh, look, whose playoff hopes just got hucked by the Fuskies. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's very rare that a uh, Husky will go up against a duck and be an underdog. So nice to see the uh, odds playing out on that one. Uh, Andy, what was your top sports story of the week? Well, my, my wife had to hide the remote control this weekend because in England, we, we were spoilt for choice. I mean, the Red Roses played the Black Ferns in the, in the Rugby World Cup final. I mean, what a game of rugby union that was. It wasn't that. Um, unfortunately, England lost, but what a great, what a game! England also lost the same day against Samoa in the um, in the semis of the Rugby League World Cup. But thankfully, the following day, England beat Pakistan in the T Twenty World Cup final in Melbourne, which was an extraordinary spectacle. But w- with all of that live elite sport going on, it was actually something far more humbling that that I'm I'm minded to mention because um, the Autumn Internationals, the the rugby union sort of uh, event is in full steam now here in in the UK. Visiting sides coming over and Scotland uh, took on the All Blacks yesterday at Murrayfield. They lost. But that wasn't the story because for those that watched it, I challenge anyone to have sort of gotten through the first five minutes of the broadcast without reaching for tissues because rugby legend, um, I mean, although he's a Scot, he's a British Lion legend of, of mine, Doddy Weir. He, he was presented to the teams ahead of kickoff on the fifth anniversary of his Motor Neurone Foundation that has secured £50 million in funding. It's an extraordinary thing to see a man mountain in a wheelchair pushed out onto the pitch. Um, I mean, it was a heartbreaking thing. And his, his famous blue and yellow tartan was represented on the shirt numbers of the Scottish team. It was a wonderful gesture. Um, and Rob Burrow, a Leeds Rhinos rugby league um, legend, he's also got motor neurone disease. So, do you know, I, I had a moment, Yanni, over the weekend where I thought sport can be one of the most wonderful and unifying things in the world. When something so terrible becomes of you, to see a community rally in the way that they did, it's where, it's, you know, where, where passion is maxed out when you see stuff like that going on. And um it was a highly emotive occasion, and um, Doddy Weir, what a what an absolute legend! Um, so it was a wonderful thing, and if you if you missed it, sort of go back and and check it out on BBC iPlayer. It was it was a move it was a moving opening to that to that game, and a lot of good is going to come to it for sure. Um, Donny, what you got for us? 
My weekend was perfect. <laughs> I had Liverpool 3-1 over Southampton. Uh, my family is actually Buckeyes, Nathan. My dad's side is all Buckeyes. So we dominated, I think it was Indiana. So I'm like, good. I'm a George Russell fan. So Formula One Grand Prix first winner. Win, first Grand Prix and, and then I thought it was, I've had enough joy. And I, I picked a football team to root for because my father was not a football fan based on their helmets when I was five years old, not knowing they had never won a Super Bowl, not knowing they would not win one in the last 40 years. I'm only 44. In the last 38 years since I, I picked them. However, yesterday was the Super Bowl to me because the underdog, no one picked them. Let's hope the other quarterback of Buffalo gets hurt team marched in there in the cold, in the snow, in my New York, and went to battle and came out victorious in overtime. And everyone's going to hear about it for me. Thank you for publicizing it even more so. But if you're from Buffalo or a fan of theirs, I hope you're crying because our team marched in there and rocked you. And uh, I love the underdog story. I would like to see a Super Bowl this year before I die. Or I'm, this I'm, year, whichever I'm, comes I'm, trying to, I'm trying to decide whether I want to jump on your bandwagon and congratulate my investors uh, <laughs> uh, over a wise or or if I or if I want to be a true fan and say you know who's yes, going to yes. wreck your plan. <laughs> I know, I know. The moment the moment that it comes around. It's coming. The Seattle Seahawks. It's coming. The Seattle Seahawks always that we have a we have a we have a target on the back of the Minnesota Vikings at all times. They've always and been a problem. We have, always. We have been a, we've been a problem to that team for for many I hate, years. I hate so. going there, Gino. <laughs> I, what do you say, Gino? Uh, they wrote me off, and I didn't write back. That might be the sports quote of the year, if not the last five. Uh, of the, yeah, yeah, I agree. That is my favorite. Always, always a pleasure uh, to have you two on the podcast. Uh, and Andy, wonderful to have you on once again. For those of you who listened, thank you for listening. Uh, and again, a reminder to subscribe and like wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, follow us on uh, sportsloft.co and at sportsloft.hq. And all that remains for me to say is a huge thank you to our three guests. Andy Sutherland, thank you for your maiden appearance on the Sportsloft podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Donnie, thank you so much for being on once again and for gracing us with Vikings-related joy. Thank you. Thank you, Yai, Nathan, and Andy. And uh, Nathan, thank you for waking up at uh, an ungodly hour in Seattle to join us uh, and for your dulcet tones and thoughts. Thank you for being on. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Andy. Great to see you. And uh, I, I, I can't finish this podcast without saying Donnie and Yanni at the same time because it runs. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again. Everybody, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. And we look forward to seeing you again soon in the Sports Loft. Goodbye. Goodbye.